So this same Christ who wants to be your savior today, if you don't meet him in forgiveness, he will become your judge. People who have ignored him, people who have cursed him, people who have disobeyed him, people who have denied him, people who have disowned him, who have blasphemed him, they will meet him face to face. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl has been addressing biblical prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled in his series, God's Prophetic Schedule. Today's sermon is entitled, Your Day in God's Court. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 12 say, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Today, by God's grace, we will study the place and person over this judgment. Please join us in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, as we begin. Would you take God's infallible and authoritative word and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 20. It's the very last book of the Bible if you're new to the scripture. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, we are in a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. We're between a verse-by-verse exposition of an entire book. And right now, we're looking at God's prophetic plan, and we're moving into that section of the plan as we approach eternity future. You can see the title of the message is Your Day in God's Court. And I want to use Revelation 20, a familiar text, as a launch pad for this important passage of Scripture. If you know Revelation, it's really the conclusion to the Bible. Remember the word revelation is the Greek word apokalupsis. That means to unveil or to uncover. And so in some English Bibles, it's not called the revelation, it's called the apocalypse. And that's okay. Uh, Remember, titles of books are not inspired. They're there to help us to identify where we are in the Scripture. And of course, this is the last book of the Bible. It describes the consummation of all things for both the believer and for the unbeliever, the believer in heaven and the unbeliever in hell. And as you study Revelation, it will capture your attention. It will stir your imagination. It will point you to our grand and glorious future that God has for us in heaven. But at times, it will just quiet your soul and cause you to be still and to think hard. And certainly, that's true of this topic this morning, your day in God's court. Now, if you were here last time, we studied the current hell, Hades, that someday will be turned over into the lake of fire. But today, all unbelievers are in Hades. But the final destination of the lost is what's referred to at the law, as the great white throne judgment where they are cast into the lake of fire. It's a real literal place. Now, sadly, today people use the word hell almost as a swear word, or sometimes they use it to describe a difficult time in life. He or she is going through hell. When I went into the ministry in 1978, 86% of all Americans believed in hell. According to Pew Research, of Americans believe in hell, and it keeps getting lower. 21% of millennials, 16% of Generation Z. But according to the epistle of James, if you were to survey the demonic world, 
100% of the demons believe in hell and they shudder. Hell is a real place. I know to preach on it is offensive to some. It's certainly unpopular. Some would call me rude or impolite, out of step with the way the average American thinks. Look, you may not like the doctrine of God's eternal retribution, but it does not change the truth. I do not like war or poverty or racism or child abuse, but it doesn't change the truth of it. Hating to die does not change the fact that you are going to die. And I've heard some pastors almost with a sense of delight preach on hell. That's disgusting to me. When we preach on the doctrine of eternal retribution, there ought to be compassion in our heart, almost a tear in our eye. And so this morning, I hope that you will understand that as you think about this doctrine of eternal retribution, it will cause you to grow in your appreciation for what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Now, when you think about the return of Jesus, there's over 300 references in the New Testament alone to the fact that he's coming again. And here in the Revelation, in the final chapter in 2212, The scripture says, Behold, I am coming quickly, Jesus is speaking, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. In fact, the very final thought in the Bible, Jesus said, Yes, I am coming quickly, to which John says, Amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. But not everyone believes what God has plainly said. And when it comes to hell, many pulpits are silent, especially the evangelical pulpit. It's hard today to hear a sermon in an evangelical so-called Bible-believing church on the doctrine of hell. Those sermons are rare. And then there are the liberal pulpits that outright deny the existence of hell. Rob Bell, who denies hell is real in his New York Times bestseller book called Love Wins, wrote this, pastors preaching on hell will only cause people's stomach to churn and their pulses to rise. Well, I may warn you this morning, your pulse may rise, your stomach may churn a little bit, but we're not going to run away from the truth. In fact, faster and faster, more than ever, people are departing from the truth. And we're not totally surprised by that because God said this is what would happen at the end of time. No one knows the day or the hour, but we know the season. We know we are in that final time frame of human history, if you've been with us in this series, because at the end of time, God would bring Israel back into the land. They are there. God is setting the stage for the return of his son. And God says explicitly by the Spirit that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. The faith articular there, meaning this body of truth we call the Bible. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, Jesus came the first time as a savior. When he comes again, it's going to be very different. He is coming to judge the living and the dead. He came the first time to hang on a tree. When he comes again, he will sit on a throne and we will look at one aspect of that throne this morning here in Revelation chapter 20. Follow along, we want to read verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. 
from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds." Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, for the benefit of those who are not familiar with the book of Revelation, let me set the context of where we are in the argument of this book and really broadly with God's prophetic schedule. The theme of the revelation is found in the opening chapter in Revelation 1-7, and there it says, he is coming with the clouds. That's the theme of the book. And God sovereignly with this particular book, probably so we would not misunderstood it, actually gave us the outline, a divine outline of the book in Revelation 1 in verse 19. There John wrote, therefore write the things which you have seen, that's the things in the past, And the things which are, that's the present. And the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. And so after the introduction that's found in the first eight verses, he describes the things which you have seen. And he writes of a vision of the glorious, resurrected, exalted, reigning Christ in heaven. Then in chapters two and three, here on the chart, he writes about the things that are present. He writes about the church, and he addresses seven specific churches, seven churches that were real churches that were alive and functioning, that in many ways are representative of churches across the world today. And then when you come to chapter 4 and verse 1, he moves to the future. He uh, He moves from the church to the consummation of all things. He will underscore the things that will take place after these things, metatata. And so when you come to chapter 4 and verse 1, there's a change. When he writes about the things that are in the future, in chapters 6 through 18, he is describing that horrible, terrible period of time known as the Great Tribulation. And so we're told here, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here. Now we'll show you what must take place. There it is again. After these things, you can't miss it. A door is opened in heaven. And if you are here for the early part of this series, this is when God catches up. He raptures the church. And so in Revelation 6 through 18, the church is nowhere mentioned. The only saints that are mentioned are tribulation saints not church saints. You do not see the church again until Revelation 19 when we come back with Christ. And so seven years of horror unfold on the earth. It is so bad that men will seek death, but they'll be unable to kill themselves. The scripture says death will flee from them. He writes of a bottomless pit that is open and 200 million demons that are released for a period of time to taunt men. And again, the purpose of the tribulation period is God's final wake-up call to get people to repent. He writes of this coming Antichrist in his rule and reign on the earth, a singular global government, a man who will blaspheme God 
And then he writes of this battle that takes place at the second coming called the Battle of Armageddon, where Jesus will return and in a moment's time squelch the rebellion against him. And so when you come to Revelation 19, uh, this is what happens after Jesus returns. So chapter 19 is his return. And then when you come into 20, 21, and 22, you're reading the events that will take place after his return. So here we are in chapter 20. Let me zoom in on the immediate context a little bit closer. In verses 11 through 20, which again we're going to use as our launch pad to study the doctrine of eternal retribution, the end of all things is at hand. Um, all that men have dreamed for, schemed for, sold their souls for, it's now finished. And they are meeting God in eternal judgment. The thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth is completed. And so the end of the thousand years, if you look at verse 10 here in our chapter, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. They were thrown in there a thousand years before. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Hell, of course, was never originally created for man. Jesus said it was created for the devil and his angels. He will say at the great white throne judgment, depart from the accursed ones into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So that brings us here into the immediate context of the passage. Time as we know it at this point will have ceased. God will put the last period and the last sentence and the last paragraph of the last chapter of Scripture and he'll end it. And heaven and earth will flee and the judgment of all time will take place. And there are five dimensions to this judgment this morning that I do not want you to miss. First there in your note-taking outline, I want you to think about the place of judgment. Now this is a familiar text to many of you. I preached on it about four years ago. But did it do us any good? You see, you can know truth and get enamored with the end times doctrine and it not change your life. And we ought to study the doctrine of eternal retribution and if it's not moving us and compelling us to share the good news with the lost, then we have really missed the point. So first, let's think about the place of judgment. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Now we're approaching the end of all things before God's people enter into their eternal state known as heaven, and the lost enter their eternal state in the lake of fire. Again, time as we know it has ended. The bodies of all the unsaved have been drawn up from wherever they were Buried. The Supreme Court with the Supreme Judge of the universe is sitting on the throne and he is getting ready to judge the lost of all time. I hope you have a Bible on your lap because I want you to pay close attention this morning. If you don't have a Bible, come tonight to meet the pastor. You should have a Bible on your lap and you should take notes because this is like basic discipleship as you help a new believer that you've introduced to Christ. Maybe you've never introduced someone to Christ, and that's what you need to fall on your face on this afternoon and ask God for. But if you introduce someone to Christ, this is basic discipleship. This is basic truth they need to grasp. 
Now, please note here in verse 11 that he describes this place with a great white throne. It's great because great speaks of the power behind this throne, and white speaks of the purity of this throne. The purity of this throne is so intense that when Isaiah has a vision of it in Isaiah chapter 6, seraphim have to cover themselves because of the brilliance and holiness of God. It's so bright, no one can hide here. You don't want to stand before this throne. Sometimes I've heard Christians ignorantly pray, Lord, when we stand before you at your great white throne. There are no believers at this throne. The only people who are present are the lost of all time. And they are standing here just before they are eternally judged. This is a terrifying place. Notice, too, it says, earth and heaven fled away. The Greek word translated fled away is a prophetic heiress. You say, well, that blesses my soul. It should. Listen, what it's referring to is a sudden violent termination. God isn't going to fix up the current earth. That's amillennialism. They don't know what to do with Isaiah 60 to 66. And so there's a popular book on heaven that says, well, God's going to fix up the current earth. No, he's not. He's going to destroy it. Heaven and earth fled away. Second Peter chapter 3 describes that the heaven and earth, current heaven and earth will be burned with fire. And God is going to create a brand new heaven and earth, Peter will echo, as will this text here in the Revelation. So the current heaven and earth are burned, and this great white throne is, I suppose, somewhere in outer space. And all the lost of all time are brought before it. Just before Revelation 21.1, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Now, 50 times in the Revelation, the throne of God is mentioned. It's majestic. It's, spl- it's uh, filled with splendor. But it's also terrifying, especially for lost humanity to stand here. And so in this in-between time, God is about to deal with the very last vestige of sin in all of the universe. And here's this throne suspended and out of space. There's no place to hide. There's no rocks or trees to get behind. When Adam sinned, the Bible says he hid himself. There's no place to hide here. You're face-to-face with God Almighty. It's terrifying. That's the place of the judgment. Secondly, there in your outline, I want you to think about the person over the judgment, the person over the judgment. We read now in verse 11, then I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. John speaks here of him who sat upon it, whose presence was so awesome, so terrifying, that heaven and earth fled away. Now, who is this person who is so awesome and so terrifying that heaven and earth would flee? Who is the judge upon this bench? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he is, not as the Lamb of God, but he's here as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's not here as the Savior. He's here as the judge of the world. You say, how can you be so sure it's Christ? Circle the word him, and let me give you some verses you can write above it. 1 John 5 and verse 22. John 5, 22. There Jesus said, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Or listen to this verse, write down 
Acts 11.42, Peter is in Caesarea. And listen to what he preached. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one. He's talking about Jesus. This is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Likewise, there on Mars Hill, the apostle Paul informs us, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So this same Christ who wants to be your savior today, if you don't meet him in forgiveness, he will become your judge. People who have ignored him, people who have cursed him, people who have disobeyed him, people who have denied him, people who have disowned him, who have blasphemed him, they will meet him face to face. Now we have studied already through this series how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit share the throne of God equally. But even within the triune God, there is various responsibilities that each member of the Godhead exercises. And the unique judgment here is entrusted to the Son, of course, who provided a way of escape that you might not be here. And so here's this unbelieving world. They will all stand before the Lord. We'll see here in a moment. There's no saved people here, only lost people who have a date with Christ, a date with deity. Third, there on your outline, beyond the place of judgment and the person over the judgment, I want you to think for a few moments with me, the people at the judgment, the people who are at this judgment. We read now, beginning in verse 12, and I saw the dead the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. I think it might be helpful to define some terms here. And this is by way of review for some of you. But if you can't tell me the three aspects of the Feast of First Fruits, then it's already gone through your brain and out your ears and you don't remember. So I want you to pay attention. This is important. This, again, is basic discipleship. We discussed how there are seven feasts in Israel's history and how those seven feasts and somehow picture the work of Christ, either his first coming or his second coming or both. The four spring feasts were really all accomplished at his first coming. It's not by accident that he dies literally on Passover. The time when they would slice the necks of those lambs is when Jesus is bleeding on a cross. He's buried on the day, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread as the sinless Son of God is placed in the tomb. He is raised from the dead on Sunday, which was the Feast of First Fruits. And of course, 50 days later, as Shavuot, he comes back and sends the Spirit on Pentecost. So the Feast of First Fruits is underscored in these two resurrections. There's the first resurrection, and there's the second resurrection. Drop back for just a moment to verse 4 of this chapter. Verse 4, we read, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. That's how people are executed as followers of Christ during the Great Tribulation. You get your head cut off. 
those who have been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshiped the beast, the antichrist or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is the resurrection of tribulation saints who've been executed. The rest of the dead, the unbelieving dead, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So these who come to life, their part, he says, this is the first resurrection. Notice, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So this concept that there's one big general resurrection where all the lost and all the saved are brought together is not taught in Scripture. It's taught in medieval art. It's taught in Roman Catholicism. But it's not taught in biblical theology. And sadly, many who came out of Roman Catholicism continued with this doctrine, and they are missing the precision and the accuracy of Holy Scripture. The first resurrection is a resurrection of blessing. It's only of the saved. The second resurrection is a a resurrection of judgment, and it's only of the lost. And as we'll see in a moment, no one in the first resurrection will be lost, and no one in the second resurrection will be saved. So we need to ask, in what sense is this the first resurrection? Because if you've read your Bible, you already know that there have been some resurrections that have happened. Well, in the broadest sense, remember, there are two kinds of resurrections. There's the resurrection of the saved and the resurrection of the unsaved. The resurrection of the saved is the first resurrection, and it speaks of a kind of resurrection that every true child of God will indeed experience. Remember, seven feasts, one of those feasts was the feast of first fruits. And in 1 Corinthians 15, when the apostle Paul is describing the resurrection, he makes this statement. He speaks of Christ who is the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. And so according to the feast of first fruits, the harvest had three parts to it, if you've studied it. Just as the first resurrection will have three principal parts to it. When the first fruits were ripened, the farmer would bring to the priest a sample sheaf. And the priest would take that sheaf and he would wave it before the Lord. It was called a wave offering. And it was symbolic of saying, God, we thank you for your provision. We thank you for the harvest that is coming by your hand. And of course, the singularity of the sheaf represented Christ and those small number of stalks within it, grain stalks, represented a handful of Old Testament believers who would be raised after Christ. A much overlooked and ignored verse that's found in Matthew's gospel, and you'd expect it to be in Matthew's gospel because, of course, he is writing to Jewish people who understood the seven feasts of the Old Testament. The tombs, he says, were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city, Jerusalem, and appeared to many. So Jesus and this handful of Old Testament saints who are resurrected are the first fruits. They are a picture of the harvest that is to come. That's stage one. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 
and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 028. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search of Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out her podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.